0: Videos play a key role in the continuing education of a software engineer. Video can capture many different types of content that might be useful for an engineer. Conference talks, tutorial videos, and podcast-style interviews are all popular formats in online video. YouTube has become the predominant source for video content about software engineering. The open nature of YouTube's format allows for a tremendous range of content. No matter what your preference is for how you like to learn and be entertained, YouTube has something for you. Tech Primers is a media channel that is dedicated to sharing technical knowledge in the form of videos, GitHub repositories, and a thriving community. Tech Primers has over 300 videos on YouTube and more than 48,000 subscribers who regularly watch content about subjects like AWS, Spring, and Kubernetes. Tech Primers was founded by Ajay Kumar, Ajay has been in the software industry for 15 years, and he has been working in banking technology for 7 years. He has deep experience in modern technologies and engineering practices. Ajay joins the show to discuss the modern world of software engineering and his experience building a media platform. He also talks about the technology culture of India. Ajay is based in Bengaluru, and it was exciting to learn how much our different societies have in common, thanks to technology. Ajay also had me on his YouTube channel for an interview, which was a lot of fun. That link is in the show notes. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. And we recently launched GitHub integrations. It's easier than ever to find collaborators for your open source projects. And if you're looking for someone to start a project with, FindCollabs has topic chat rooms that allow you to find other people who are interested in a particular technology. You can find people who are curious about React or cryptocurrencies or Kubernetes or whatever you want to build with. Also, we recently launched Podsheets, an open-source podcast hosting platform. We are building Podsheets with the learnings of software engineering daily, and our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast... Check out Podsheets.com. You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. ...at triplebyte.com... SEDaily... ...you can start your process by taking a quiz... ...and after the quiz... ...you get interviewed by Triplebyte... ...if you pass that quiz... ...and if you pass that interview... ...you make it straight to multiple... ...onsite interviews... ...and if you take a job... ...you get an additional $1,000... ...signing bonus from Triplebyte... ...because you use the link... ...triplebyte.com... SEDaily... ...that $1,000 is nice but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. TripleByte does not look at candidates' backgrounds like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. TripleByte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from... Non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com/se daily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a TripleByte interview. Go to triplebyte.com/se daily to try it out. Thank you to TripleByte. Ajay Kumar, you are the founder of Tech Primers, which is a YouTube channel for software engineers. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on your channel. Why did you become interested in producing media for software engineers?
1: So there is a long history to it. So initially, like maybe a decade ago, I used to help people when they are stuck during labs. At the grad school, So I used to see people facing issues when they are stuck in the computer science lab. So I was a computer science graduate. So I used to help people when they are stuck with debugging issues. Mostly they miss out semicolons, they used to miss out some syntax errors, and then they were not able to figure out what's the problem. So I used to help out people right from those days, right? And recently after joining corporate, I had been working in different firms, different financial institutions. I've seen different institutions scale in different level Over a period of time, internet has been emerging as a winner in every single area. So right from Netflix, coming on to streaming platforms like TV, which we wouldn't have never thought of, who thought that we will be paying something for an internet streaming company, right? So I used to think cable TVs are the go, and we never will be like streaming TV in our living room, right? So i had been following YouTube for like maybe six to eight years now. And uh, there was a point when it stuck to me that, I actually talk too fast right so i wanted to slow down my pace on talking because when people need to understand when i try to talk to them they needed to understand in a way in their bandwidth right so i used to talk very fast so i wanted to try out youtube because i used to follow lots of channels for example mkbht i'm pretty sure you follow mkbht right so these are tech channels which used to showcase unboxing videos i used to follow these crazily right for a period of like 4 to 5 years every day i used to see at least 10 minutes of youtube video so i can't like sleep without seeing a youtube video so over <laughs> a period of time it became an addiction as a viewer right and then i used to like start searching for something new right something which is close to my heart which is technology right? That's when I used to search for productivity tips. I used to search for intelligent shortcuts. I used to search for uh, spring boot hacks on how to be productive in creating softwares, how to create architectures. So that's when it struck to me that there are not very great videos in YouTube. Obviously, there are lots of platforms like Pluralsight, Udemy and others where we can go and learn stuff, but there are less platforms which can teach you productive, quick ways of learning something new, And also I wanted to keep myself updated. There used to be like lots of RSS feeds in my feedly.com mobile app. And I used to register to the RSS feed, but I never go into the RSS feed because the number of content which comes into the feed is humongous. Right. And I get used to like lost in track of what post people post. So that's when I thought of um, getting to know new stuff. And then I wanted to leverage YouTube because I've seen lots of YouTubers getting to know new stuff and then sharing their knowledge and the growth which I've seen the way they started the first video to the video which they are currently. So I've seen humongous transition. So I wanted to go through that transition and see and give it a try.
0: So, you saw the, the creative evolution yes. of some YouTubers that you followed.
1: Yes, exactly. So, for example, MKBHD, I used to follow him like maybe from 1,000 subscribers. Now he's like, I think, 10 million subscribers or something. So, I have seen the way he started as a YouTuber, but I never saw somebody technical doing that kind of stuff. But still, I wanted to have a, a passion. To be carried forward in a platform like YouTube, and I, I saw YouTube going so high.
0: It's interesting to hear you say that. When I go to art museums, sometimes, which is not I don't do on a regular basis, but the times I've gone, they often have exhibits where they have an artist that has been painted for a period of thirty or forty or fifty years, and you see their progression through time. It's really interesting to watch because it's just a gradient, and you and it's it's kind of inspiring in some ways, because oftentimes their early pieces are just not very good, or they're not very focused. And then you kind of follow it along the wall, and they're just increasing in skill and and artistic integrity and so on over time. And, and you're articulating that about YouTube.
1: Yep. So if you look at ourselves, right, when we start our career in the early phases, we never knew what are the ultimate stage where we'll be reaching right so obviously we all along with the technology along with the practices along with the work we do at work similar to your podcast right when you started your podcast you wouldn't have uh, known that where you will be so you have a short-term goal you have a long-term goal but still how do you get that goal so obviously we try to imitate others or we try to see somebody else and we create that as a passion and that's what takes us from there right so same way i used to have a passion in learning technology I used to like try out lots of hands-on programming uh, like outside office hours. Like I come back home and then I try lots of things. But then there was no way for me to showcase what I used to try, right? Obviously GitHub used to have lots of open source code where we can contribute, but still there are too many open source projects. For example, there is no single platform where you can showcase your stuff. For example, you have now FindCollabs, which is solving lots of collaborative issues which we have in the industry. Same way with respect to sharing knowledge via primers right hands-on coding examples in an easier fashion that is missing in the free world right where we are saying open source is the key for free things same way for learning something there is nothing for free people have to like spend so much of money and then they end up listening to a two-hour video And the number of distractions you get within a two hour video, like listening (laughs) to a two hour video is like tremendous, right? So that's why I wanted to create short videos with something related to coding. And that's when I show people how to code and then I expose this code in GitHub so that people can go and clone it and then try it out
0: locally. It's a great format. The videos you have on Tech Primers are 10 to 15 minutes and they cover stuff that's very relevant, like getting started with AWS, learning Spring Boot, design patterns. So tell me about your own software media consumption habits. We'll get into tech primers in a little more detail, but I want to know a little bit more about how you consume software media today because today you were describing being overwhelmed by your RSS feed. Today there's podcasts, there's blogs, there's videos, there's conferences, there's hacker news. There's a million different ways that you can consume information. You can just saturate yourself in software engineering material all day long. What are your consumption habits?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Whenever I talk to people about learning something new, the first thing people ask is, how do you know about these stuff? Because as you said, there are too many things to handle, right? So see, what I generally do is I create a plan. For example, right now, my current plan is when I get up, I look at the episodes of Software Engineering Daily, and then I listen to those episodes when I take path. see. Obviously, these are podcasts, so I can just listen to them. But if, let's say, I want to understand Kubernetes and I want to try out Kubernetes, I directly jump onto Kubernetes by trying out Kubernetes right from the scratch. And if I hit into a hindrance, I go and search the documentation. So the major thing which people miss out is the documentation. The moment I start searching for documentation, I Google out. So when I Google, it ends in a Stack Overflow page or something in the Google forums where people give links for maybe Reddit discussions or maybe discussions in GitHub issues. So that is where I navigate through the internet. So I have a preset plan, for example, podcast. Then I go through DZone. Then there is InfoQ. Then I majorly follow these co-founders, founders, conference speakers in Twitter. So Twitter is the major source of consumption of my knowledge and um, ideas, right? I have been using Twitter for more than 10 years now. Right from my college days, I used to use Twitter. That was like a very nascent stage. So I have seen the evolution of Twitter right from the days when they had only one single
0: page. And so now you're following like the software influencers. You're following like the... (laughs) Like the service mesh making people who are publishing, you know, tweet storms, and you're probably following the Kubernetes IO, just like the Kubernetes account itself and, you know, seeing what they publish, but you're just using that as your main source.
1: Yeah, correct. So for example, I used to uh, watch Venkat Subramaniam's videos on functional programming. This was like four years ago. That's when I, I worked for a bank and then I wanted to do Java streams. Java 8 was a big thing. And then functional programming was a new paradigm in the Java language. And uh, I used to search for videos in YouTube and that's when I found out Venkat Subramaniam's video. So he used to be very funny and the way he takes these basics of functional programming to a different level, it was like mind boggling. So I got inspired with the way he speaks, the way he talks. That was my first inspiration. If If you ask me what inspired me to talk or teach people in a wider forum, that was the first thing which hit me when Venkat was like taking a video on functional programming. Right. And it was a hard long video. I never knew that I passed five different videos of Venkat. And then I, I, I was like, I started with functional programming. Then I ended up with Kotlin, though I don't even use Kotlin. The way he was explaining <laughs> videos, it was, it was completely tremendous. And it was like, I was hooked onto the video. Right. So that's when I realized I need to be somebody like that. And I wanted to see these kind of inspirational people. So the first thing I did is go into Twitter, follow him. So when you follow Venkat Subramaniam, it suggests to you people from different companies. For example, people from Spring, Pivotal. I also met uh, Josh Long, the contributor for Spring Boot in one of our conferences in India. So that is when I spoke with him. I tweeted about the way we spoke and all. So that's how I started following people in Twitter. And the moment somebody at that level, a developer advocate in a company where he's trying to create or get collaboration for a new tool, I get news directly from Twitter right? That is the first point. Then I search, for example, service mesh, right? Somebody tweets about service mesh. Obviously a new term catches fire than like whatever, right? So I go and search the internet for service mesh. And that's when you find out lots of medium posts on service mesh. And that's when I identified medium as the next WordPress in the internet, right? And that's how I follow people. So people who have written articles, people who are developer advocates from Microsoft, Googles, and Amazons of the world, right? That's how I keep myself up to date.
0: What I like about you is you are such a fan of the broad range of technologies. And this is kind of the, the same affinity that I have. I I don't really have a particular technology stack that I'm interested in. I just like consuming a wide variety of things and uh, you know, going deep fairly rarely trying to understand how the big picture fits together. It seems like you're you're kind of the same way.
1: Yeah, agreed, Uh, right? See, I never used to work on all different technologies, but my passion is towards learning something new. For example, I was learning AWS, and over a period of time, I became like maybe a beginner, and I am able to articulate, and I'm able to give you solutions on whatever kind of problem statement you come up with. But still, I wanted to explore the parallels for example kubernetes i wanted to see what kubernetes provides which aws doesn't provide and that's when the interest comes into my mind saying okay you learned already aws now why not kubernetes though i don't work on these technologies directly at work i try to create these accounts and with the open source era now everything is free so if you ask me to like create a kubernetes cluster i can log into google Cloud platform and create a cluster and google provides a one year hundred dollar credit and i can use that for like I don't know, however, like I have made like 10 videos on Kubernetes. All these are free. The major idea of learning something new for free interests me in creating more and more videos on new technology stuff. And it interests me to learn these as well, right? So you like, nobody's charging you for something you want to try out. And that's when I go and try out. And that's what I uh, try to make in Tech Primers as well. I don't create enterprise videos. I don't get sponsorship from people. My idea is to learn something which is free so that people can learn as well. And I can show people how they can learn. So that was the thought process.
0: Do you have a vision for this turning into some kind of business or like making ad revenue or, or something? Like I love the motivation there. But do you have a, an entrepreneurial vision for Tech Primers as well?
1: So when I used to discuss with people, they used to, tell that this is my uh, retirement plan (laughs) but yeah so right now i don't have any vision on generating revenue for my full-time job but still there are some ad revenue which youtube provides that is enough for running the channel that's what i feel and i'm able to like uh, run the channel with that right for example the techprimers.com and the relevant accounts which i create sometimes i go to AWS and then i overspend so i will have to pay these checks back so i use the revenue which i generate from the channel for these kind of Stuff.
0: Well, I think that's great. I mean, that, those are high CPM videos also. I mean, if you're creating really compelling content for, and I've seen some of your videos, they have like 100,000 plus views, right? And these are topics that you're going to have tech companies that want to buy ad space on them, like whether it's Microsoft Azure or MongoDB or whoever, whether they're advertising on it today or they will be in the future, it seems like that'll be a pretty good revenue stream.
1: Oh, yeah. There are so many people who request for a startup kind of an idea. For example, uh, the video you were mentioning, it was something like an end-to-end microservices creation with different spring boot and uh, fault tolerance, resiliency, service discovery, et cetera. Right. So it took like, I think, two weeks to prepare the content and then you'll have to record it. So what happened is when I was recording the video, there was laptop crash. So I felt like, oh, my God, (laughs) It, it it was like sometimes this happens. right? I used to spend so much amount of time and then you realize that, oh, man, this is all like in trash now. So it takes so much time to create quality content. And I wanted to stick to that. So I don't want to create viral videos. I wanted to create something which engineers can relate to. That is where my experience fulfills the need of the engineers, right? So I can bring in my ideas from how enterprise softwares are created and I can relate that and then create a software rather than showing them a hello world program, which is available anywhere in the internet, right? So that is when I spend some time there. Obviously, every video doesn't get into YouTube channel. I have like done more than like 300, 400 videos. But then right now, there are only 290 videos because there could be a case where I hit roadblocks. I was not able to find documentation. There were issues. I was not able to fix them and things like that. But still, it's fulfilling to see people coming back and asking me, can you please create this end-to-end stack? I found it very useful. There are so many fans who have given me presents just because they got good high-paying jobs after seeing my videos and then clearing interviews. So that is like fulfilling thing, which I feel is the revenue for my channel right now. Maybe in future I might change my vision, but the current vision is to create quality content for people who can go and try these out themselves.
0: You got plenty of mileage left to cover in that vision. What I see is there are so many people who are moving into software engineering. And right now, there's a lot of people who are just new to it. And, you know, maybe they're two to three years into their software engineering career or maybe they just came out of a boot camp or they just came out of school or whatever, maybe right now they might not even be looking for the kind of content that you're providing. I mean, I feel the same way about my content. The average listener or the average viewer of your content's probably like got maybe three to five years of experience at least. I'm not sure. I mean, there's some experience bar that you need to reach before you start wanting to learn Kubernetes and AWS and so on. And over time, there's just going to be more and more of these people. So because they're early right now, and then they're eventually going to advance, and they're going to want to move beyond like kind of the introductory coding stuff into the more advanced subject matter. And I think this will just increase over time, because as you and I both know, software engineering is really exciting. Once you start, you're probably Mm -hmm. not going to stop. Yeah, so
1: that's a very good question. Right. Many people ask me to do basic videos in YouTube if you look at the YouTube landscape so I did not start the tech primers just like that when I saw Venkat Subramanian's video so I analyzed lots of different videos if I feel there is a video which is already existing I try not to make it again. This is because I'm duplicating the content which somebody has has already created. I don't want to create duplication just because I have like maybe 45,000 subscribers in the channel. I want to create the same content so that I can get more revenue or maybe more ads revenue or maybe more views which can improve my channel. I don't want to do that because already somebody has spent so much effort in creating something which is basic right and that is where i can bring in my experience where i have enterprise knowledge and i can add in more value to the existing build out which somebody has built so i can add in some flavor of enterprise and then bring that to the enterprise knowledge so that people can relate it to a real world scenario and a real world example right that is when i said okay i'm not doing basic stuff I'll do some of the basic stuff which is required to get into a stage. For example, for Kubernetes, if let's say I want to show people how to do blue-green deployments, I cannot just start off with blue-green deployment. So I need to make sure people understand what is the architecture of Kubernetes. So I will create an architecture which evolves over time and then it reaches to the blue-green stage. So you will be finding series of videos which will take you to that step. So that is where I feel the enterprise knowledge and the expertise will help people to get into that stage. And there are lots of YouTubers. It's not just me who's creating videos. Everybody is trying to like share knowledge in the uh, YouTube platform right now. And there is no other platform right now which is equivalent to YouTube. So right now it's just monopoly, if you ask me. I'm uh, looking forward to see Amazon's and the Netflix of the world creating a competitive platform to YouTube. And uh, we want to see how that comes into picture because there is no other competition in the YouTube space right now.
0: Yeah, Twitch is probably like the closest thing maybe or? Yeah, so it's it's mostly for
1: gamers and live streaming audience. I use Twitch a lot. So I used to context switch uh, by um, watching gaming videos, food videos. There is a, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, you can look at my subscription list. There are like 300 different channels I follow. And it's not just technology. Only like 40% will be technology. I follow entertainment channels. I follow food and health related.
0: As a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side business. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service. MongoDB Atlas handles all of the costly database operations and administration tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security and high availability and data recovery and monitoring and elastic scaling. Try MongoDB Atlas today for free by going to mongodb.com/se to learn more. Go to mongodb.com/se and you can learn more about mongodb atlas as well as support software engineering daily by checking out the new mongodb atlas serverless solution for mongodb that's mongodb.com/se thank you to mongodb for being a sponsor let's talk a little bit about enterprise software because this is what your expertise has developed into or one of your expertise is you work in banking and we don't need to talk specifically about banking, but I think of banking as one of these industries that has been in software for a long time. So the average bank has a fifteen to twenty year to fifty year old technology stack that has evolved over time. It's been updated over time. And I think a lot of these kinds of industries banking included, the predominant stack, like if you join a bank today, the predominant stack that you're working with is Java, Spring, Cloud Foundry, and a lot of the server infrastructure is on-prem. These kinds of enterprises are thinking right now about, okay, how do we do containerization? How do we do Kubernetes? What are we doing with the cloud? Take me inside the average enterprise like are they updating their technology or how are they thinking about updating their technology how wedded are they to spring and cloud foundry and is there a necessity to move more into kubernetes and cloud and like platform as a service and managed databases and so on or or is it okay to just kind of continue with that you know the cloud foundry focused on-prem focused paradigm
1: that's a very good question so it's a flavor of both. If you ask me, the ratio would be dependent on the regulatory stuff which the firm is involved. So I worked on different uh, lines of business. I worked on investment banking. I worked on asset and wealth management as well. Right. So the regulatory aspects add more value to these banks because the way you host data matters a lot. So there could be a regulation in Switzerland saying you should be hosting your data only within Swiss and nobody will be able to view what data you host outside swiss so this is one kind of a regulation so like that every line of business in any banking industry or a team which focuses on a specific product will have these kind of regulatory necessity which they have to adhere to because right now nobody wants to pay a huge margin of fines in regulations like maybe 10 years ago we have seen banks making mistakes and people pay a lot of fines in terms of regulatory reasons now people want to have strict rules in terms of the way they develop software However, there are some specific use cases where they want to go and try out all these latest technologies because there is a need for them to upgrade as well. So if let's say nobody joins a company just because the tech stack is old, so it doesn't look good. So every developer is looking for something new And banking industry is also moving towards that. I wouldn't say completely 100% of the banking industry will move to cloud and the way we do new stuff, the containerization and service measures of the world. But still, there will be some part of the deployment which will still be on-prem due to the regulatory requirements. So that is the only hindrance which these huge banks faces. And also the other thing is the legacy components. So most of the components which are present inside enterprise world is all legacy. And they generate revenue. Most of the generated revenue is all out of these legacy systems. And uh, nobody wants like to... Like
0: COBOL stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. COBOLs and mainframes of the world, right? You don't, you can't like replace a whole mainframe system in a year or two. By the time you think of replacing it, a new technology arises. So I have been working in banking uh, industry for over like seven years now. So right from the start, I have seen uh, people working on mainframes and they are not able to still replace the system. So when I joined that particular firm they said that they're going to replace that mainframe with a java-based solution but still that mainframe runs now and only 10 percent of the mainframe was replaced in the last seven years so that shows the amount of dependency which they have with the revenue model which banks generate but still banks are coping up with it because that's the new way of getting developers onto the system and change the way they have been thinking in developing software so i would say maybe 10 percentage of the uh, deployments will stay on-prem. And in the future, uh, maybe in like 2022, I don't know how far it is, but I would definitely say that people will be moving to Kubernetes or public cloud, maybe uh, AWS, Azure, or GCP, whichever it is.
0: And you think that the Kubernetes, AWS deployments, those will be for maybe greenfield applications, newer services?
1: Yes. So right now, that's what people are doing. So if there's a greenfield, people think about deploying it into the newer ways of developing softwares in the cloud native world, right? Either you deploy it in Cloud Foundry or GCP or AWS or Kubernetes, doesn't matter. So it's the way they see the business revenue model, right? So if let's say I have a heavy application, which I don't want to touch for a while, I might be like deploying into on-prem. But if there's a need for me to like push this constantly, and I want to leverage the features of the cloud, like blue-green deployments and auto-scalabilities and stuff like that. So that's when people go for the newer versions of these paradigm.
0: How has the Java Spring ecosystem evolved since you entered the industry?
1: Oh, yeah. When I started coding in like 2009, I used to work in the Solaris box. So this was, like I think, Java 1.4. When I never knew like the UI was developed in some other software and like, we know that there is a UI, you will have to just use it and stuff like that, right? Now, if I look at it, there is Java 12, where we are talking about functional programming. But still the major part of the Java, the core attributes of Java still remains. The way you define stuff, the way you create store artifacts, uh, store uh, memory inside the JVM, it's all like the same. The more value had, which I see is the Spring ecosystem right? When we used to start, like I said, a decade ago, we used to have handwritten logics for creating application servers or web servers. So these code used to be like, what, 1 million lines of code or something just for the framework to just bring a server up and then handle requests in a way you can handle your threads inside the JVM. Now, if I look at Spring Boot, I can just bring up a container in like, what, a minute. You can go to start.spring.io and spawn a simple web server in a minute. So that's where I, I see that people don't worry about the framework as such the the way you create basic stuff people are now concentrated on the business logic on in getting like use case driven solution for their implementation so i've seen so many frameworks come and go but spring has been the major leader in the industry and with spring boot they are just killing it in the jvm world that's what i see because every where you go people are using spring boot if there is a web service it's Spring Boot in the enterprise world.
0: Explain what Spring Boot is. How has that evolved the Spring ecosystem?
1: So before the Spring Boot ecosystem was created, there there was this huge hype with respect to Docker, where everything was packaged as a single container and you had the whole runtime within a single image or a package, right? Now, coming back to Spring Boot. So Spring had too many dependencies with respect to property files and the web server, which it was running on. So if you create web server's code, you will have to run it in a application server or a web server most of the time we choose tomcat for it so people have to have tomcat installed in their on-prem dev uat and prod machines and all these could be different versions so what happens when i test my web servers in dev it could be a higher version of my tomcat and if i go to test it could be a different version and same with prod and there is no way for us to reconcile saying whether the tested version in dev is the same as in the production because these runtimes are tied up to the host and there was no way for a developer to know and developer doesn't even care about what tomcat version is running on these servers so that is when spring boot came up with an idea saying i'll package my runtime along with the same artifact which i generate that way i'll be able to test my whole runtime along with the artifacts which i want to test in the same environment. So if I go to dev, I'll be using the same version of Tomcat. And Spring Boot consolidates all these Tomcats into an embedded Tomcat in a same jar. So previously, if we were creating web artifacts, we used to create something called as var files, web archive files. Now you can still leverage Java archive files and run a web server because all the Tomcat elements, the runtime components are all embedded inside the same jar. So that is what
0: Spring Boot is. So like when, when I think about time to getting my application off the ground. The gold standard, it may not be the gold standard today, but Ruby on Rails, it made a big move forward in terms of how fast people could get their applications off the ground. Did Spring Boot bring that kind of Ruby on Rails like experience to the Java ecosystem?
1: Definitely. Spring heavily relies on annotations. So if let's say I want to create a simple REST service, I can just annotate it with a simple get mapping or a post mapping. And that can internally generate lots of code. And the framework takes care of routing your request to the method which you have written. So in essence, it is exactly like Ruby on Rails where the productivity increased. Same with Spring Boot. It was not exactly the same, but still... If you are concentrating more on business use cases and you don't worry about the size of your JVM and you don't want to consider performance too much, then Spring Boot is your way because your productivity increases in creating applications and then pushing it into prod as quickly as possible.
0: You mentioned something earlier. You were checking out Kubernetes because you wanted to see what Kubernetes offered that you could not get out of a cloud provider. I thought that was a very interesting statement because... Obviously, cloud providers now offer Kubernetes as a managed service. I'm curious about what you meant by that statement.
1: Yeah, so when I I saw Kubernetes, every cloud provider was having Kubernetes along with their offering, which basically meant there is something new which Kubernetes offers, which they don't have. So that was the primary reason why I wanted to learn Kubernetes, because if I learn Kubernetes, I can work on any of these platforms. Even I can go to like Azure, and then I can work on a Kubernetes cluster inside the Azure platform. When I learned AWS, I realized how attached I am to the AWS ecosystem. So if I learn something within AWS, it is tied up only to AWS. But when I learned Kubernetes, it is tied up to every cloud provider in some sense or the other. So I wanted to explore Kubernetes to see what is that, which is, which is like a selling point for Kubernetes. And I see so many developers contributing to the open source ecosystem inside Kubernetes. And that is when I was extremely eager in learning Kubernetes.
0: And since getting into that Kubernetes ecosystem and you see the potential to work on other cloud providers, have you experimented with Google Cloud and Azure and started to get a maybe DigitalOcean, started to get a sense for what the other cloud providers have to offer? Do you, ha- do you have a sense of how they contrast with each other?
1: To some extent, I do have. So I tried OpenShift, maybe like I think when I started Tech Primers, I found it a little bit tough. I have used Cloud Foundry, I have used AWS and Kubernetes, I started learning with Google Cloud. So I knew that Google is catching up with uh, what Amazon is doing, but I didn't want to get into a bias situation because everybody talks about AWS. And that's when I thought, okay, let me learn Kubernetes first and let's see what Google has done and how does it. Compete with the other products. And that's when I learned Kubernetes with Google Cloud. So Google Cloud, like I said earlier, they provided a $100 credit. So I was able to create a cluster within minutes. And once my job is done, I could delete this cluster. And the charge would be like maybe $1 or $2. After a one-hour run of multiple pods and containers and testing all these, I was able to spend only like maybe a couple of dollars. And that's when I was interested to see how the other cloud providers are performing. For example, I was able to easily create a cluster in Google Cloud, but in Azure, it was slightly different. You will have to do lots of customizations. So I would have to go through the DevOps route. I will have to understand too many things in creating a cluster in order to set up a Kubernetes cluster. Maybe it has improved now. But when I was trying, it was more towards administration level where I had to give too many inputs to create a cluster. And that is where I saw Google Cloud Platform better with the other products. Azure, I'm not sure because I've not tried it. I tried reaching out to a couple of developer advocates in Azure recently, maybe two months ago when I met them, but I haven't started Azure. First, I wanted to make my knowledge good with respect to Kubernetes. Then I wanted to go to the other service providers. But from what I saw, Kubernetes was pretty good with respect to Google Cloud Platform. And it was very easy for me to start a cluster and it was free. But Amazon doesn't provide an easy way for me to like try out something. Because most of the time when I want to experiment or when enterprise want to experiment some things, people would like to take a step back and see if something is available for free or for a less cost. And that's when you try to do stuff right? So that is when I filled GCP as a go-to, and I try always with GCP. That was the major reason I started using GCP. I have never explored the other features like the compute engine and the machine learning related stuff, but I felt Kubernetes was pretty good in GCP compared to AWS.
0: Azure has skyrocketed to you know the second most popular cloud provider. My understanding of how they did that is that It had a lot to do with the fact that Microsoft is deeply embedded in a lot of enterprises. Like, Microsoft has database products, they have operating system products, and because they have those products already in the enterprises, they have sales relationships with those enterprises, and they were able to leverage those sales relationships to help those enterprises move into the cloud and select Azure and they, you know, they could kind of Sherpa them through that process. Do you have an understanding for how Microsoft has played this game so well and how they have gotten to a position where they are, you know, they're not close to AWS, but they're in second place and they're doing really well. Do you have an understanding of how they did that?
1: Yes, to some extent. So when I spoke to people who have been trying to adopt to Azure, the first thing they say is the same thing what you mentioned. So Microsoft has always been a product company and they have been developing software right from the start, like maybe when I was born, right? But Google have been evolved from a search giant and then they are trying to sneak into every line of area. Same with AWS. It was an e-commerce company and then now they are in the cloud space. But Microsoft has always been a software company and people trust Microsoft more than all these providers and that's when people choose Azure over AWS and that's what I have been hearing from a lot of my colleagues from different companies so the moment first they try out AWS they want to have a backup plan in Azure as well that way they have hybrid cloud strategy and then they have like maybe multi-cloud strategy where they have multiple cloud vendors so that they don't get tied up or they don't get hooked into one particular cloud platform And that's when they choose Azure as a second option. And that's why you see a lot of companies adopting Azure nowadays because of this specific reason, the Microsoft branding. And with Microsoft acquiring GitHub, I feel that's a good move because now you build more confidence in the open source industry where Microsoft is now leading the whole ecosystem of hosting your code.
0: One of the subjects that you cover in your videos is design patterns. Design patterns is something I've always had mixed feelings about because I think the way you actually learn design patterns is often by seeing them fully implemented. And it it sometimes makes me wonder what's the point of even discussing the design pattern itself if you could just learn these things by example Why are design patterns important for software engineers?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. So in fact, there was some reason why I stopped that series. It was exactly the same because there could be different ways of implementing the same. And if I say something, it might not be relevant for your example. Maybe the use case is the same. But if you look at the maintenance perspective, for example, I had worked on a product which had heavy design patterns. Like I used to note down the number of design patterns which was there in the code base. And it used to hit like more than 15 And I can't even keep track of what are the different design patterns, right? And I know this has evolved over time, but still it is very difficult to navigate and maintain a code base when you have too many design patterns. And when you have people who don't even understand these design patterns, like one such design pattern is a visitor design pattern. It's like initially very complex to understand, but when you understand it, it's easy. But the guy who has created this design pattern, he knew what he was doing, right? But the only downside was, The others who were in the team, they were not able to catch up with what was that design pattern. So what happens? People just ditch that design pattern and try to create a different design pattern, which is easy to understand, right? So it's all up to the implementation and most of the time it just ties back to the developer because if I'm comfortable with something, I'll do that. But if you ask me, a design pattern should be chosen when you have the luxury to maintain it. If let's say I want to keep my code base simple, I would go with a simple design pattern. I don't want to like complicate my code with respect to visitor design pattern. I would rather have maybe a switch case kind of thing to like control, maybe a factory design, factory pattern to do it, right? That is when I see more value add when you want to weigh your maintenance of the code with respect to how you write your code. So if you're okay with maintaining a code with more complex design patterns, then yeah, and that, that's, that's how it is.
0: I mean, the whole concept of design patterns is always confusing to me. So like you take Model View Controller, for example, I think I still don't really understand how model view controller works. And I don't know why it's important because if you can just say, instead of saying like model view control, we have the model, we have the view and the control, you could just say, here's the web page that gets rendered to somebody, here's the database. And here's the application. The application requests information from the database and renders information on the front end. Like, why do we need the abstract idea of a design pattern? It seems like it just adds kind of unnecessary complexity. Why not just talk in terms of databases and applications and front end web pages?
1: Oh, yeah. That is the major reason I started Tech Primers, to make things simple. Uh, As you said, I have seen technologists going crazy with these terminologies, right? It's so academic. Uh, Exactly. I mean, it's like... kind of a norm these days when you come up with a new term for an existing thing for example pod why would you name something a pod? Like when you group something as containers, you can say container groups, right? So these are some maybe norms which we have created as technologists saying, we will just give fancy names. If you ask me, I'm a fancy guy. I can I can give you whatever name you want for any product. <laughs> so if you ask my manager, he will, he will know about my products, what I have created internally, right? So I think it's kind of in our DNA where we want to create new product names which are fancy so that people can come in and then look into it. But underneath, it's all the same thing so uh, like i was listening to your uh, videos on databases there are too many databases like cockroach db mongodb there are so many databases but there could be only a slight difference between either of them but the naming construct of these databases doesn't solve the problem of what they are trying to solve
0: well it could be pretty good branding i mean cockroach db great branding you know yeah. like <laughs> it never dies it's just like a cockroach yeah agreed <laughs> I- i'm curious about cultural differences between software developers in india and those in the united states because i talk to you kind of feel like i'm just talking to you know we could be having coffee at, at a silicon valley company it just feels like it's pretty borderless conversation you know we're on we're browsing the same internet forums we're looking at the same kind of content how do software developers in india compare to those in the united states
1: so i live in the uh, silicon valley of india bangalore right? So I started my career here. So from what I have seen right from my days, right? So when I started off working in a service-based company, so you will be abstracted with too many things. So you will be just getting a Jira, which you can work on, but you won't have an end-to-end understanding of how a software is shipped onto the production machines. In fact, I can guarantee that more than 50 percent of the people who are in India still won't know how things are getting shipped onto production. But over a period of time, this evolved and lots of companies started opening branches in different regions and different parts of the world. And again, being India, you have the population and the wide variety of culture and the integrity so that's when people start opening offices in Bangalore majorly right so most of the software companies they start off with offices in Bangalore and if you look at the landscape so let's say I work for a service-based industry now next switch which I want to make is obviously to a product company if let's say Facebook comes to Bangalore I will definitely try to go to Facebook or if let's say some other big bank comes into Bangalore I will try to switch to that particular bank this is because most of the time you get freedom when you move above the ladder right so that i have personally seen when i was in a service-based industry when i used to create products nobody used to like appreciate right people used to be like okay yes whatsoever but when i moved to a bank and when i created something which can make your life simple people used to appreciate they used to take time in reviewing that they give feedbacks so what happens is you create a culture which is globally present So I used to work with people from New Zealand, people from Singapore, people from New York and London. So I got all these cultural values from these people. So if you look at my evolution, I didn't evolve being in India. So I was in India. In fact, I never traveled to any other uh, country for work. But still, I got these values incorporated from these people. And not everybody might be doing it in India, but you need a passion to it. So for example, I remember in my first code review, I got like 50 comments. So I still remember that code review because I learned a lot from that particular code review. If I had thought that, okay, somebody is just trying to bash me in, in terms of code, I could have just gone back and then just been in the same company. But I have learned so many things from that. And then now I'm in a state where people look to me as mentors, where I can train people. So that is where I see things getting evolved. And in India, especially, there are lots of people like these. So I'm not the only guy. You just see me because I collaborated with you and via YouTube or Fine collapse but still there are lots of people in India who are evolving with the global audience. So it's like kind of an open source community. If you look at Envoy, the major contributors are from like Asia Pacific, right? So similar to any project.
0: Really? Yeah. Like what companies?
1: Salesforce. And um, like I have heard from um, people, like in Bangalore, if you come to a conference, you can see everybody. You can see the same branding. You can see the same stickers. You can see the same stalls. I even went to a lot of stalls like HashiCops, stalls were there. There there is this uh, conference called the Great Indian Developer Summit. I used to attend it the last few years. So this year, again, I I met a lot of people. For example, like Scott Davis from ThoughtWorks. He has come Venkat Subramaniam. You, You can find like all speakers who are traveling across the world in India as well. So the open source community has evolved such a way that you don't segregate people based on region or community it's all based on the term developers right so you may be from india you may be from um, maybe singapore philippines it's just the knowledge because people get these cultural values from the internet and we are all connected by internet like you said we can have a coffee in california but still maybe you are just connected to me in internet right so that's what i see so it's not just specific to india The world as a whole is like evolving with the internet.
0: And I love it. It makes me optimistic. And on your LinkedIn, there's this quote, you say, I'm a technologist who goes crazy when new stuff is launched in the United States. And in the US, technology has become a form of pop culture. And I think to developers, obviously technology is pop culture, you know, it makes complete sense that developers are going to get really excited about new technology, because that's an opportunity for stuff we're going to adopt really early, maybe it's opportunity to build a little business or something. But do you feel like technology, is it becoming pop culture- in the mainstream as well, like just beyond just like the developer culture? How is technology affecting the general pop culture?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. So I had a blog post written maybe a year or two ago. So this was like digital India initiative, right? So every country has their own digital India initiative. So when I was looking back, maybe a decade ago, how I was, when I get up from the morning till the end, right, when I go to bed, so i have just reviewed and compared there is a blog post in medium so i'll just try to summarize what i do right so when i get up i obviously look at my smartphone so that was not there before i used to have an alarm clock now i have a smartphone i look at all the notifications what is there then i book a uber for traveling to my office then i go to my office to get my breakfast done i need to open an app so which is linked to my cafeteria so i can pay what i wanted and that is all again linked with my bank account so this is what i do just till breakfast right again i go back to my desk and again i'm connected to the internet so the only part which will change for others who are non-developers is the part when they go to their desk at work and most of us are using computers these days so when i used to work initially so i used to have a 256 gb ram and uh, that used to be considered as a like high-end computer now i have a mobile which is more than like what 4GB or 6GB RAM in my hand, right? So it's not just specific to me as a developer, but if I look somebody who's traveling with me in Uber, who's not a developer, he's maybe an accountant with some uh, corporate, right? So he's also undergoing the same change of digital evolution, which I went through. So he's also having his app, He's also having his calendar, everything in his mobile. So nobody's even talking about getting a notepad and then writing it. There are lots of people who still like the retro ways, but still I see everybody using Facebook's WhatsApps. Like my mom uses WhatsApp heavily and Facebook heavily now. So maybe three years ago, she was thinking why everybody chats in Facebook. You get addicted to social media, but now social media has come to a situation where you just get addicted like anything like i'm saying because i used to get addicted to youtube i don't use facebook much nowadays because i have crossed the time when i used to use facebook crazily but then now i have moved to youtube twitter and other social media platforms so definitely this the social media plays a lot in everybody's day-to-day
0: activities Codacy helps development teams of all sizes to automate their code quality by identifying issues through static code analysis, both in the cloud and on-premise. The Codacy product notifies users about security issues, code coverage, code duplication, and code complexity in every commit and pull request directly from their current workflow. Codacy has been designed by developers to be easy to set up and use, and it's completely free for small teams, up to four developers. And it's also completely free for open source projects. You can find out more and try out Codacy by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash codacy. That's C-O-D-A-C-Y. Codacy is a tool for static code analysis and issue identification. It will help you find security issues and code duplication, all these other issues that you can find through static code analysis. Check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash codacy, C-O-D-A-C-Y. Thanks to Codacy for being a sponsor. I want to ask you a little bit about, my understanding is that in India, and this is just from reading some headlines, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there's kind of a battle going on. And I I talked to somebody in Vietnam who said this was going on in Vietnam, where basically it's kind of like a battle between the Chinese sensibility of social media, where you have some monitoring, you have some heavier restrictions, versus the Western sensibility, where it's a little more open, there's more privacy. And in these places like Vietnam and India, there's a debate going on about which end of the extreme do we want to lean towards. Can you tell me about the norms of social media and privacy and how that's playing out relative to China or the United States?
1: Oh, man, these are just fake news, right? So if let's say I have a website, and I want to spread some viral news, I'll definitely post something like that. But if you ask me from an end user perspective, like a citizen, it's like nothing. If you ask me, I have a daily normal BAU work, like we don't discuss all these stuff, like I have my work. I'm like, this is what maybe 99% of the population does. There are few subset of population who are hooked onto social media, like I said, right, people get addicted to social media. That's when anything, and everything which comes onto social media is a big thing for them. So even in Twitter, if you follow a specific hashtag, you will know why they started the hashtag. It's basically a publicity stunt. Most of the time, from what I have seen, These doesn't directly involve us in our day-to-day lives. Like if you ask me whether this war between Chinese and the US and India, like if you ask me, like there's no way I will be related and there's no way I can take a decision. I can maybe contribute by telling something, but still like we cannot decide and come to a conclusion saying this is what is going to happen or this is what is the right thing, right? So from what I have seen, I just take it with a pinch of salt and saying, okay, okay, this is what is happening. I'll just move on to the next news. And people get carried away with these viral clickbaits, right? We call them clickbaits in YouTube, where you have a topic which is like very appealing so that you go and log in and then check what's happening. But underneath, if you look at the content, it's not like relevant to the current situation. So I feel like half of them are like clickbaits.
0: Yeah. So, but let me just clarify what I I was trying to say. So is the usage of social media, Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, is it basically? Just like in the United States, I mean, is it just the same? Is it like a westernized internet, basically?
1: Oh, yes. So we do uh, binge watching all the time over the weekends, <laughs> right? So I use, like, I have a Netflix subscription. I use Netflix. I don't even have a cable connection. I don't see local cable TVs these days because I moved to, like you said, westernization, right? Because I am connected to people like you. So in my office, I just speak to people from London, U.S., Singapore so I don't feel that I have any local knowledge going forward right so I have like global knowledge now I'm trying to bring those knowledge onto myself like watching Netflix understanding what's happening in the US how their culture is if I uh, see stranger things I can see how people create these content which is relevant to the US and I can understand their culture by watching that and more people in India are doing it. If there is a Game of Thrones season getting launched, you can see the number of excitements which is happening. Like I talk with lots of colleagues, the college going creators, and they they go crazy with Game of Thrones. They explain the whole episode end to end, right? So it's exactly the same. People are getting westernized. If you ask me, everybody is getting westernized. And US is the pioneer in creating these.
0: Well, you know, I'm very excited about finding collaboration. I want to see how Indian pop culture feeds back into American pop culture. Because I think as you get a more saturated global connectivity, it's going to go both ways. I mean, the way it is today, it's like, I mean, the, the way that you've kind of articulated it is a lot of it is just technology is emerging from the United States and being adopted and being and other countries are being westernized, but it's going to go both ways. I mean, there's going to be a feedback loop. And that's what I'm really excited about is the technology melting pot.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. So like I said, I'm in the Silicon Valley of India. So I find startups every street. So when I go to my home to my office, I can find tons of startups. When I started Tech Primers, there were a couple of startups who reached out to me saying, okay, can you be the mentor for our startups? Because we are starting something in India and we want to leverage that and then take it forward. Right. A simple example is for my milk delivery or my vegetables delivery. So there is an app which can like deliver these right maybe at like five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, every day. And these were there for the last maybe four or five years or more earlier. So these are some things which have been evolved because there is mass adoption in India. So if you had seen an interview by Sundar Pichai on how he wants to take Google, so he has been mentioning that he wanted to test a lot of things in India because there is too much adoption in India. So that's what I see, right? There's too many people in India and everybody is moving towards technology so everybody has a smartphone like i wouldn't say everybody but still majority of the population use a smartphone like i see people using cabs left right in bangalore i don't get to travel in a public transport rather i would prefer uber because that's like easily accessible from my palm i don't want to spend more time right people have gone through the notion where they don't want to spend time in reinventing again instead they just want to leverage something which is faster like how televisions evolved how computers evolved people have now evolved with using everything and anything with respect to technology and again it's a two-way thing like you said lots of things are getting invented from bangalore as well nothing is coming to my mind right now but still definitely there is coalition where people start off from here and then it goes to U.S. and then from U.S. it comes back here and it's the other way around with other countries as well.
0: All right. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. We definitely need to do it again. I'd love to have you on again in the future. To close off, I'd like to get a perspective for how the population of programmers is evolving in India. So in the United States, we have boot camps. We have self-taught programming. We have these newer things like Lambda School how are people learning to code in India? And and how rapidly is coding becoming something that's, that's cool to do that a lot of people are doing?
1: Okay, so this dates back to maybe a decade. So when I was joining the grad school, so I had like maybe a couple of months before I joined the grad school. So most of the time in India, people like concentrate heavily on education, right? So you should never be free. So you should have to either study or play. It is either you should be a person who is like scoring first rank or you will be like top in the sports, right? You you would have heard about cricket and stuff like that. So when I started off for grad school, so I joined the institution. So these are like computer institutions where they have like bunch of computers. They teach C, C++, and that was the programming language back then right? So I used to do the certification. So that was a trend. So how people learn about technology was using these certificate programs. And then there are lots of institutions. Now, if I look at it after a decade, for anything and everything, there is an institution. So you talk about AWS certification, there is an institution. You talk about Kubernetes, there is an institution. So you talk about Java basics, there is an institution. You talk about Ruby, Python, whatever machine learning, AI, you can find tons of institutions. And that's how we scale. Like how I created Tech Primers, there are like tons of developers who are not in YouTube, but they have a local presence. And they like that much better than coming onto to a social media and then sharing their knowledge, because that's their idea of creating a revenue based model for them to sustain. Right. So definitely there are tons of these. And again, we follow the global culture as well. So we have like meetups. So every week, there are tons of meetups which are happening in Bangalore. And all these are sponsored by big companies like PayPal's, Morgan Stanley, I attended one of the uh, Java user group session in Morgan Stanley, then um, PayPal has done it a lot, IBM does it a lot, Intuit, Microsoft, everybody does these in Bangalore as well. So it's a global phenomenon. So I feel these companies are now connected globally and they don't feel you are from India or you are from the US and I'll be like giving you a different work compared to what we had been doing. So that's how we are evolving.
0: Hey Jay, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you and thank you for having me on your YouTube channel as well.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It was fun talking to you. It's, it's been a great pleasure meeting you and airing in Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me.
0: When I was in college, I was always looking for people to start side projects with. I couldn't find anybody, so I ended up working on projects by myself. And then when I started working in the software industry, I started to look for people who I could start a business with. And once again, I couldn't find anyone. So I started a business myself. And that's the podcast you're listening to. But since then, I've found people to work with, on my hobbies and in my businesses, and working with other people is much more rewarding than working alone. That's why I started Find Collabs. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. On findcollabs.com, you can create new projects or join projects that are already going. There are topic chat rooms where you can find people who are working in areas that you're curious about, like cryptocurrencies or React or Kubernetes or Vue.js or whatever software topic you're curious about. And we now have GitHub integration, so it's easier than before to create a find collabs project for your existing GitHub projects. If you've always wanted to work on side projects or you want to find collaborators for your side projects check out Find Collabs. I'm on there every day, and I'd love to see what you're building. I'd also love if you'd check out what I'm building. Maybe you'd be interested in working on it with me. Thanks for listening, and I hope you check out Find Collabs. Wow!